Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski, off a hot episode on negotiations. How are we doing? This was a really good one, Armand. I'm pumped. Absolutely. Today, we have Mark Rafan. He's the president and the host of the Negotiations Ninja podcast. He's even had the opportunity to mentor people and bring people through his program, such as the one and only Chris Voss. And so let's get right into it. Nick, why should people listen? So if you're frustrated with these long, arduous negotiations that strip all of the meat off of your deal, this one's a really important one to listen to. Mark has some concrete tactics for having conversations with procurement and the other folks you're probably negotiating with. And the strategies he gives around bracketing your pricing, tapering your discounts, and actually opening up objections instead of avoiding them is going to make for a lot better negotiations for all of our listeners. And if there's one thing you'll know for sure at the end of this, it's to shut up. Three, two, one, roll it. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. 
every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. All right, Mark, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you on. You know we start every single episode with your top three tactical tips, so let's hear them. Reverse engineering the no. That's my number one tip. You got to reverse engineer the no to make it sound more positive. So we know by default, everyone in negotiation, their first response for you is always going to be a no. So if we know that already, how do we reverse engineer our questions to make sure that the no that we get is going to be positive? So for example, if I was going to have a call with you and I said, hey, is now a good time? Obviously, your default response is going to be no. But if I said, did I catch you at a bad time? I already know that your default response is going to be no. And so therefore, now it's a positive no in my response. I like it. What's number two? Mirroring. So very, very different than a lot of people think of it. Mirroring or isopraxism is a way for us to make the counterparty feel more comfortable with us. You see it a lot in how animals display relationship with each other in courtship behavior. Whenever I start acting the same as you and I just pick up these vocal or nonverbal cues, it's going to make you feel more comfortable with me. And thus, you're going to trust me more. And now we can actually develop a relationship. That's a really powerful one. We're going to have to dig into that. Round us out. What's number three, Mark? Silence. Ask for something and then shut the f*** up. Yeah. <laughs> that is Armand's favorite right. thing in the world. The silence thing. It's like, <laughs> stop filling the space just to fill the space. Man, there's a lot there. Armand, what do you want to jump on first? The, my favorite thing to do is to go in chronological order. How very process-oriented of you. <laughs> very, and you can tell Nick is the more extroverted. He'll be talking you up, making you feel good, and I'll be the one in the corner saying, shut the f*** up every time. <laughs> so, so let's start at the beginning. And a lot of people would say when you give prices the beginning, but you have a belief that oftentimes the negotiation is going to start well before that. And so whether that's preparation, whether that's things that happen before you deliver price or commercial terms, what goes into the preparation for a negotiation? Yeah, planning and preparation is the single most important thing you can do to make sure that your negotiation is successful. Without good planning, without good strategy, you're never going to be successful repeatedly in the long run. And so it's about developing a cadence of success. And if you want to develop a cadence of success, you've got to plan for success. One of the things that we tell everyone whenever we deliver any of our courses is, first of all, you've got to know very clearly what do you need and what do you want. And there's a difference between those two things. Most people get them very confused. A need is something that we must have. A want is something that's nice to have. But a want is more emotionally appealing than a need. So I want a Ferrari, but I need a Toyota. The want is significantly more emotionally appealing Likewise, we have to determine what does the counterparty need and what does the counterparty want. Now, we're going to make some assumptions whenever we do that, but we get to verify and vet those assumptions through the use of open-ended questions. So we've got to plan out what do we need, what do we want, strategize for that, make sure that we've got a plan in place to get those things, and then start planning our open-ended questions accordingly so that we can determine whether or not the counterparty can actually meet our needs and wants. 
and whether we can meet their needs and wants or what we've assumed their needs and wants to be. And so we can vet all of those things through the use of really good open-ended questions. And open-ended questions for your listeners who are listening start with the words what, how, and then sometimes we use the word why. And I say sometimes very specifically, I'll get into that in a second. So if we're going to say what or how, then we're literally doing this to open up the conversation, hence the term open-ended question, right? So what are the challenges your organization is facing? How do you foresee your organization overcoming those challenges? Now, if I had to follow that up with like a why question, it could sound very accusatory, meaning like, why are you doing this? No one really wants to respond to that. So if I ask a why question, it has to sound less accusatory. So why do you suppose your organization went at it from that perspective? Instead of like, why are you doing this? Always speak in terms of the organization that you're dealing with and not in terms of the person who's doing it because they don't necessarily represent the views of the company and we want to be able to speak in terms of the company that we're dealing with. So Mark, Armand's talking a little bit about like this discovery side of things and something I've always been taught is the negotiation starts from the very first conversation that you have with the customer. And part of that is your gathering information and I'm listening for things that when we get to the point where we're talking about the commercial terms, I have all of this intel that's helping me shape the wants, the needs, the desires, et cetera. So there are things that we learn about our customers that are unrelated sometimes maybe to the negotiation, but what are some of the things that I should be like hot button issues I should be listening for or things that I hear them talk about early in the discussion that I can use to have an effective conversation on the tail end of the sale? You need to understand why they're doing something first and foremost. So, And a lot of people I think don't do enough when we're talking about discovery, they don't probe enough to be able to understand what's the real reason behind what they're doing. So for example, like if one of my open-ended questions was, what are some of the challenges your organization is facing? Specifically now, let's just say, in this crisis that we're having. You might say, well, a lot of our procurement people that we're dealing with, they're extending payment terms. And that's really tough for us because that means that we have to float something. And then I say, okay, but why is that a challenge for you? And then now I'm trying to understand, okay, what's the real reason behind this? And then you tell me, well, then we have to float salaries because we're typically a labor-based organization, and essentially then we become a bank. And now through that discussion, what have I identified? I've identified that this is a problem for you. You're experiencing this with other people. So if I can offer you now at some point in the negotiation, regardless of when it is, if I can offer you better payment terms, that's a lever that I can pull at any point in the discussion. Now I can ask you for something else in return. So... I can say to you, look, Nick, at the beginning of the conversation, you told me one of the major issues that you're having right now is that people are extending payment terms on you. We get it. We understand that that's a major issue for your organization right now. We want to help you with that thing. If we could help you with that, what could you do to help us? And now we can get into a discussion about what do I get in return for giving you better payment terms. It's called a question funnel. So we start with those open-ended questions, then we probe deeper and deeper and deeper to a different level, then we have those closed questions at the bottom, but I can pull the lever on those closed questions whenever I want in the conversation. It doesn't have to be at the beginning. All I'm trying to do is to try and understand where your pain points are. But if I'm stupid enough to say, where are your pain points or what's keeping you up at night, then first of all, you're a f moron and you should never be in sales. Then... 
right? I'm trying to get to the bottom of why they're experiencing pain and where they're experiencing. Now I can pull that lever whenever I want, but it's about guiding them along the process. You can't just come out with it right away. It's part of the conversation. Thank you. I love the, so like, please tell me what your top priorities are this year. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, to save money. So it's, it's one of those things that I, I think every sales organization goes back and forth with, which is the end of the quarter discount. And one of the things that I really push with my team is that if you mortgage from May and it's April right now, well, great, you had a good April, but then you're going to mortgage from June into May and then you're going to mortgage from July into June. But at the same time, procurement is expecting something at the end of the month. And so should reps do the end of the month discount? Should they just blackball it and say, this is not a policy that we subscribe to at all. How do they actually handle that without just having a deal elongate for the next six months? Yeah, I think expectations need to be set right at the beginning, right? So if you're going to deal with this early, you need to be able to say, look, I understand that in some organizations that you may have dealt with Mr. or Miss Procurement person, a lot of the salespeople that you've spoken to are compensated heavily based on their sales. I want you to know that that's significantly how I'm compensated as well. However, we do not provide discounts at quarter end or fiscal year end because we want to make sure that the organizations that we're working with understand that there's value in what we're delivering. And also, we've got a pipeline that's full enough that we don't have to. So we just want to set the expectation early to make sure that you understand that there are going to be no discounts at quarter end or fiscal year end. Obviously, that doesn't work unless you guys actually have a full pipeline because you're going to have a sales manager that says, holy we need to close, give them the discount. So you've got to have a full pipeline. Otherwise, it's never going to work. So before we actually give the price, how do you decide? In Nick's organization, it tends to be a little bit more complex based on the scope. And so let's say you've designed the scope of the project. How do you know where you should price that person? If you should be anchoring super high, if you should go bare bottom because you think they're going to get scared, how do you figure that out? That's a really good question. So I want to cover two things that you just said. Number one, anchoring. What is anchoring? And then number two, where do we come in from that? So as a general rule of thumb for those people that are listening, you should try and understand anchoring as a concept. Anchoring is the psychological propensity to rely on the first piece of information that you get rather than the second piece of information. So we can actually anchor someone's mind at a certain price and make it statistically more likely that they're going to accept a price that's higher to the first price that they see rather than the counteroffer that they provide. And so we come into this situation where we are now driving a solution if we provide that first price. So that means that we should always be asking for more than we expect to get just by default. So if you go in asking for less than you expect to get, what you're doing is you're setting that anchor lower. And now there's less likelihood of you getting a better price, obviously. So that's number one, that's anchoring. Then when we go in to determine what do we determine as the right price to come in at, as a general rule of thumb, there's a concept called bracketing that everyone needs to be able to understand. So let's just say, for example, I'm selling widgets. I know it's a concept, but just yep. <laughs> stay with me, right? So we're, we're selling widgets and I'm selling you widgets and the market price for widgets is, let's say, $90, right? We can make an apples to apples comparison from one widget to the other widget and the market price for widgets is $90. But 
I'm coming in at a price of $100. So now I know that the market price is 90 and the delta between my price and the market price is what? 10, right? So if I want to ask for more than I expect to get in that kind of a situation, then I should come in at 110 so that at least I'm giving myself room to be able to do that. Now, that's in a fairly loose market. If it was a super tight market, maybe my bracket would be smaller. It depends on the market that you're in and depends on how competitive your market is. For If it's like apples to apples comparison. Now, I'm, if I'm selling a complex SaaS product, I mean, sky's the limit, really. If you've done your job as a salesperson and you've already been embedded, then you can come in at rack. So that's different than asking to split. I mean, are you planning on coming in at splitting the difference in something like that when you ask for 80 or no? Christ, no, absolutely not. Splitting the difference is the worst idea in the entire world. Compromise is a terrible concept to begin with, right? Because that says, first of all, compromise is built on the premise that we want to be fair. But what is fair, right? Your definition of fair and my definition of fair maybe two completely different things. Now, I chose 10 as the delta there just for the sake of an example, but it could be something completely different. We're not going to split the difference on that. All I'm doing is trying to anchor you at a higher point so that you can come up to where I need to be. Now, how you determine that is completely up to you. And what you determine as fair is completely up to you. I just know that I'm not going to be naive enough to think that you think what I think is fair. And vice versa. So I want to make sure that I come into the negotiation with the right information that's going to help me get the best deal possible. Your deal's on you. What you do with your money is up to you. However, I would like it. So I'm going to ask for more. And so when you're giving price, how much preamble do you do? Do you say anything after? What do you actually say? So from a procurement person's perspective, they really don't give a right? Like, tell us the price. Like, we don't want to hear the nonsense behind it. Just tell us what it is so that we can deal with the situation. And I think that a lot of salespeople try to like, well, you know, competitive, blah, blah, blah. Just say it. Like, stop beating around the bush. Be direct. Say, this is the price, right? In order for you to get full value for this product, the price you will pay is whatever that price is. And then you just go silent. And then shut your mouth. Don't say anything. Wait for them to come back. So I'm in a negotiation with you. I, I'm on the phone with you. You're the procurement person, Mark. And we're going through the, the proposal I put together. And you're saying that to me. You're saying, that seems like something that should be free. Why isn't that free? How do I respond? Like, What actually should come out of my mouth as a best practice? So when you get that response from a procurement person, then your response should be a response based on a question. Why do you think that should be free? And then you shut up again. And then the procurement person says, well, it just seems like it's a super expensive thing. And then you say, well, what makes you think it's so expensive? And now you can start probing down based on their responses. And you, like, well, the market data that we have shows that this price for that thing versus the price, the same thing that we're reviewing is yours is way more expensive. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, maybe we can do an apples to apples comparison to make sure that the information that you're getting from the other party is exactly the same as the information that I'm providing you. Because what I would hate to see happen is that you make a decision based on price and then get a significantly poorer product. Can you walk me through what they're including? And now you're getting competitive intel. And now you can determine whether or not that you actually are overpriced. Because maybe you are. You don't know. 
But until you get that competitive intel, you're never going to be able to tell. It's the clarifying questions. It's amazing. Every time I feel like I don't know how to respond in a sales situation, you reminded me this here, Mark, because I'm sitting here and I heard you talk as a procurement person saying that should be free. Why isn't it free? And I'm like, man, I have no idea how I would reply to that. And it's almost like a rule you can lean on as a salesperson. If you don't know how to respond to something, err in the side of clarifying. Very good. One of the things we talk about a lot is you never want to leave a negotiation on a bad note. And so let's say you get a hothead on the other line. I've had people literally jump on calls and say, that's ridiculous. That's garbage. I'm not paying for that. How do you de-escalate that situation while still being firm and holding the line effectively? Really good question. So isopraxism works both ways. Remember earlier on, we talked about mirroring. So it works in positive and it also works in negative. Meaning if you mirror the bad behavior of someone else, it's going to escalate the situation and it's called the conflict loop, right? It's just like an arms race of anger. And you see this with chimps, like one chimp gets angry, another chimp gets angrier, the other chimp get, and eventually they start fighting, right? So you've really got to break that cycle. You've got to break that loop. So that's when you've really got to slow down. And just by doing that, you can start to move away from that anger, frustration response to the, okay, now I've got to solve this problem response. And now you can start being more calm, cool, and collected. But the rational discussion doesn't come right away. You've got to give them the opportunity to vent because they've obviously, you've hit a hot button. They're frustrated. They're angry about something. They want to be heard. Let them be heard right? Hear them, actually listen to what they're saying. Because what you may find as you probe is that they may have a legitimate reason, or maybe you're the 10th person that they spoke to today, and they were pissed at the other nine, and you're just the unlucky person who gets that 10th response. And so let's say that we've gotten all the way to the bottom of the question trees, and we're parsing our folks into two different groups. The first group is the people who are just asking for the sake of a discount. You're basically going to hold the line with those ones. Let's say there are some people who really do have a legitimate reason. They're looking at a competitor who has product parity, who ends up being half the price, but they like working with you guys for maybe 10% more value. And so you do have to discount. Some deals, you will have to come down. How do you discount effectively without making it be this net because the moment i taste that someone's willing to discount i'm going to start roping them in for more and more and more and more how do you make sure it only gets done one time i think what you have to understand is that if that person is asking for a discount and you want to reduce their proclivity to keep asking you've got to make sure that they understand that with each request there is a series of diminishing returns and it's called tapering your discount so for example if you were Let's just say, for example, I was selling something for 100 bucks, but you wanted it at 80 And you say, hey, man, I really need a discount in order to make this work. I'm going to say, all right, look, we could probably do it for 95.75. And you're like, I really don't know if I can make that work. And then you come back with a counter. I'm like, okay, maybe we could do it for 93.22. And then you want another one. I'm like, mm, we could probably do it for 93.05. And what I'm doing is I'm making sure that the amounts on my discounts are not even so that you, like if I offered $5, then $5, then $5, your natural next response would be, obviously, I'm going to get another $5 if I keep asking. But if I make sure that that amount that I'm giving you is uneven, and I'm making sure that it reduces with every single request, what I'm doing is I'm tapering that discount down and I'm letting you know that with every single request that you have, there's a series of diminishing returns. And so the ROI for the request becomes significantly lower. 
So now you have to decide, am I going to put in the effort to make this worth it for me? Yeah, I think a lot of people will just give the $500 here, $500 there. The other thing is, as you're giving those discounts, Mark, there are two groups of sales teams. One is the type where the rep has some control over that price. And then the other type is where they need to go to the back office to talk to their VP of sales. Do you think it's okay to disclose that you have power in the negotiation to talk about commercial terms? Or should you always say, I don't have any power here. I need to go talk to somebody else. I would say as a rule of thumb, never disclose that you have the power to do anything. But I'm also not saying that you should disclose that someone else has the power. So unless you're specifically asked, right? And then you can say, I'm good up to a certain point, but if we get to that point, I'm going to have to go to someone else. So I think that's important. I don't necessarily think it's critical for you to be able to disclose that unless you're asked. Let's say we decide to walk from a deal. How do you walk from a deal? Because a lot of times people will be, someone like me, I'll fight you to death. And if we leave on bad terms, I might've been willing to sign at the price that you were giving me, but it's almost like in my own pride, I'm going to stay away from the deal because we left on bad terms and I don't want to look bad. So how do you walk leaving yourself and the prospect with dignity while still leaving the door open for a future deal? First of all, your pride's got nothing to do with it. Don't let your ego get in the way of doing good business. So that's rule number one. Secondly, if you have to walk away from the deal, you always say, look, unfortunately, at this price or these terms, this deal no longer makes sense for our organization. If you find something that works for you, we're happy to support you and help you look for alternatives. Cool. No problem. If at a certain point you decide that those options are not worth it for you and you want to come back and have a conversation, we're happy to continue the conversation at the same place that we left off. I just want you to know that when you come back to that conversation, we still are not going to be able to move lower than where we are right now. Now, in order for you to be able to say that, you have to be very clear about what your walkaway line is internally in the organization. And so you've got to have a very hard and fast rule about, okay, if this person comes back and then I offer them a further discount, I'm going to look like a cheesehead. So I need to make sure that this line that I'm drawing in the sand is actually the line. So Mark, we could keep talking about this for hours and hours and hours, and we've already taken away a bunch of gold. We've talked about a lot of the good habits that a strong negotiator sales rep should have, but there are also a lot of bad habits out there. And so what's one thing that every sales rep needs to stop doing immediately to win more deals and stop discounting? That's a really good question. The one thing that every salesperson needs to stop doing immediately is believing that relationship comes first. Let me be very clear. Relationship is super important. Don't get me wrong. But if the deal makes sense, the deal makes sense, whether we have a relationship or not. As a procurement person, I really don't give a shit about you. I don't. But if the deal makes sense, we're going to make this work. So yes, the relationship makes sense. Yes, it's important to be polite and professional and all that kind of stuff. But the deal's got to make sense first and foremost. Does my business user want it? Does the deal make sense commercially? Does it make sense legally and financially? If it does, we're going to do it. So you don't have to be super chummy chummy with me. I don't really care. As long as the deal makes sense, we're going to do it. Awesome. Well, Mark, is there any last word that you want to leave with the audience before we sign off? Yeah, stop justifying. Just 
ask for what you want and shut the up. Everybody shut the up and hold on for a 60 second recap email coming up right after this. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from the episode with Mark Rafan include number one, before a negotiation, know what you need versus what you want, and know what they might need versus what they might want. Number two is set the expectation up front that we don't do end of the month or end of the quarter discounts. So let's just do the deal on a normal timeline. Number three, say the price and shut up. Don't justify it. It shows insecurity. And then number four, when they do fight you on price, you have to stop and ask some questions. Understand why they feel like they need a discount. Are they actually benchmarking you apples to apples against another competitor? Or are they just asking because it's their job to ask for a discount? Nick, how can people help us out? I have no wants. I just have one need. And that need is for everyone listening to this to go into iTunes. Yes, just iTunes and hit the subscribe button. That's all we want. And it's all we need. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on 30 Minutes of President's Club. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes.